thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 83. This week, we are discussing the arguably unglamorous but unquestionably vital role of modern warfare in the electromagnetic spectrum, focusing primarily on tactical electronic attack with a guest who flew both the EA-6B Prowler and its successor, the EA-18G Growler. And for you digital combat simulator enthusiasts, Stick around after the interview for a special announcement about a new partnership with our friends over at Thrustmaster, makers of your favorite DCS flight control ecosystems. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. The internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here is your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Jello, and joining me in studio today is United States Navy Captain Dave Kurtz, call sign Minimi. How's it going, Minnie? It's going great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, glad you could make it. I mean, golly, you just live up the street here in Coronado, but it's been a little effort to get together. I was in Oregon last week, visiting family, hanging out, fishing, and having fun. And before that, you weren't too accessible, were you? No, we were uh, trying to get together for a while and then uh, being out at sea. So uh, currently the CEO of USS Somerset based here in San Diego, and we were out at sea doing an exercise. Mm -hmm. And uh, while the COVID pandemic was raging itself around the country, we were healthy, had an entire healthy ARG out at sea. And uh, the decision was made that we should stay out there and uh, be prepared to support the country uh, as necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, It worked out well. We have a healthy crew and uh, we got a lot of great training done, but it's good to be ashore and good to be able to get together. Well, you had open barbershops and gyms. <laughs> That's right. We did. We had the only open barbershops yeah. and gyms in the country. Never thought there was an upside to being underway, <laughs> but uh, I know you guys were out there doing good work. So uh, we're glad to have you back. And let's start at the beginning though. Uh, and we're doing a little different format from usual. You're going to be both our guest and our guest co-host, but uh, right. let's get to know you. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What did you do before you started driving ships? I uh, grew up in a town called Coatesville, Pennsylvania. It's about uh, 40 miles west of Philadelphia, so remain a Philadelphia sports fan. But my mom was from Virginia Beach, so we used to uh, vacation oh. Virginia Beach all the time, uh, and I would see the Tomcats fly over. So uh, I got hooked fairly early <laughs> in my life. Okay. So uh, angled for the Naval Academy and got in there, and then after that, picked up NFO. Went down to uh, flight school and ended up selecting uh, Prowlers out of there. I wanted Tomcats. But ended up with Prowlers, which I greatly enjoyed. All right. It's a very NFO centric aircraft. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I felt like I was uh, more part of the crew, but it was great fun. And interestingly enough, my uncle was a uh, carrier suitability test pilot. He was an A6 pilot in Vietnam. Whoa. And then he did a lot of the initial testing on the Prowler at Pax River. Uh-huh. Uh, so it goes back uh, quite a ways. Then I uh, did. A JO tour, uh, West Coast, uh, the second deployment of which happened uh, right after September 11th. By that point, I was a tactics instructor in the Prowler and uh, got to use my experience to uh, help train the squadron and prepare us for that. Following that, went down to a Fallon where you and I overlapped a little bit there. Mm -hmm. Then a CAG staff tour. The Fallon tour was interesting. I don't know if you remember that a bunch of us went over and planned uh, OIF in the uh, Air Operations Center. So a short tour with a a three-month deployment shoved in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. But that was great. A Marine and I planned uh, all 800-some Prowler missions uh, that occurred during that initial operation. Then I got to go uh, over there and fly in it myself as part of the CAG staff. Cool. After that, I ended up as department head in Japan and didn't go to the Middle East for 12 years, which is uh, interesting, you know, (laughs) nowadays for Mm -hmm. someone who's been in the Navy as long as I have. So I did my department head tour in Japan. After that, went did a legislative fellowship in D.C., working for a congressman from Philadelphia. 
not planned. It just happened to work out that way. Serendipity. But it was awesome. Yeah. Then I went to my command tour, at which point I transitioned to the Growler. So I took command of VAQ-132, and we were an expeditionary squadron. So we were land-based. Oh. And then we were the first squadron to deploy expeditionary to Japan. So we took the first Growlers across the Dateline, did our deployment over there. And in fact, I did my incoming change of command uh, down in Australia. Nice. Who now fly the, uh, the Growlers. My first day in command, I was on national TV in Australia, giving a tour of the jet to the Australian defense minister, the U.S. ambassador, and the uh, chief of the Royal Australian Air Force. And then they announced that they were buying growlers and became our first partner. So we can thank you. <laughs> I, I was just the face on TV. Yeah. It was all the guys in uh, Pax River right. uh, and Whidbey Island that were doing the hard work of selling that. Mm. And after my command tour, I went and did EW cyber stuff on the joint staff, got selected for nuke power, Went through that whole process, was the EXO of Nimitz. So uh, in my deployment in 2017, that was my uh, first return to the Middle East, like I said, in 12 years. Wow. And uh, now I find myself here in San Diego, finally, after 24 years of service, I finally made it to San Diego. <laughs> and that is why you are currently the CEO of the USS Somerset, because it's your deep draft, right? Correct. Yeah, the process is EXO of a carrier, deep draft command, get to practice driving a ship and uh, leading that crew, and then kind of on standby for selection for CVN command at some point in the All future. All right. Well, golly, how many hours total, and break it down for me if you could. I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, but uh, <laughs> how many flight hours you got? I have about 2,700 flight hours. Mostly in the Prowler, I'm guessing? Yeah, about 1,900, uh, just shy of 2,000 oh. in the Prowler, and another 500 or so in the Growler. And then uh, during my uh, CAG staff tour, I ended up flying uh, Super Hornets. Oh, so uh, Yeah, I was down in Lemoore, and there were no prowlers down there. So uh, in order to maintain currency, I got to fly that. Got the back of the F. Okay. It was good. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Well, we have a question coming up on that from one of the listeners. So you're just the guy to answer it. Great. And clearly, you're the right person to discuss today's topic because... There is a lot that goes into this. First off, just the alphabet soup. There's a <laughs> lot of two and three letter acronyms that begin with the letter E for electronic. Yes. EW, ECM, ECCM, ESM, EP. Let's start big picture and then work it down to what is electronic attack? And we're going to focus our discussion today mostly on that. Sure. We'll think of EW as the umbrella term, electronic okay. warfare. Right. And then you have subsets of electronic warfare. So you have your electronic surveillance. That's listening. Let's build the picture just like you would with a radar. Then you have electronic protect. What are the things that you were doing as a blue force or uh, as an individual unit to uh, maintain your ability to use the electromagnetic spectrum, be it uh, comms or radars? And then the electronic attack portion, that is the offensive portion of that. So EP being defensive, EA being offensive. Okay. Now we're going to delve into, again, the EA part of it today, but let's start back at the beginning. How long has EA been a thing, if you will? I mean, I'm guessing radar started showing up in World War II. So right. I'm guessing as soon as there was radar, there was counters, right? As soon as there were radars, there were counters. <laughs> and it started with aluminum foil, with chaff. Yeah. Folks putting that stuff out to uh, disrupt radars. As radars got better at being able to work through that, then you have to adapt again mm -hmm. to uh, counter everybody else's growth. What you really see in terms of the offensive nature of it, though, is during Vietnam. The Marines started to convert some of their A6s into electronic tech aircraft. Because of the prevalence of the radar-guided SAMs in that war and the toll that they're taking, you see the Marines start to add that capability. The Navy did it with the uh, A3, with the Sky Warriors, so mm -hmm. they turned it into the EKA3B, the whale, uh, <laughs> and added that version in order to provide some of that capability as well. The Prowler comes around in the late 60s. First flight was actually 1968, about a week ago, May 25th, 1968. Right. First flight of the Prowler and uh, comes into service 1971. This is the Navy's chance to uh, try and build a dedicated platform to provide this capability. And you can see the proliferation of SAMs in Vietnam and, and as they've grown and uh, grown in capability as well it obviously becomes necessary to have something to counter that in order to enable aircraft to do their job. Well, and on this particular episode, we're not necessarily going to delve real deeply into any of the specific aircraft, although I think you're clearly capable to do that. Maybe we'll have you back when we do. But in general, when we think of EA, so for example, in the Super Hornet that you flew, there was various 
onboard systems, ALQ, what, 126 on the old Hornet. I forget what, 216? Yeah, anyway, that sounds right. ASPJ, yeah. right? Right, right. So does that qualify as electronic attack or what about carrying a harm? Is that part of this too? And again, I know there was a lot of acronyms we threw out before, but... Right. Airborne self-protect jamming, ASPJ. Right. Yeah, that certainly qualifies. It receives a signal. The computer in this case sends a signal back in order to disrupt that radar signal and protect the aircraft. The difference with the growler is that you put a man in the loop in order to make priority decisions with Mm -hmm. limited resources so they can take a look at whether that threat signal is really a threat to the aircraft or by using the ES suite, using those antenna, you can tell pretty well where that location is and then decide whether it's even worth going after that or not and thereby preserving resources ASPJ, you know, kind of just a uh, repeater, if you will, mm-hmm. and it acts autonomously. And it's more defensive, I would argue, yes, right? So absolutely. a prowler and a growler is a dedicated part of the whole strike package with a certain purpose that we're going to talk about in a moment. But if I'm just out there and I want to increase my survivability, I can put on different, like chaff, for example. That, exactly. That's something to help survive, as is the ASPJ, tow decoys, all these different things. That's only going to protect that one aircraft. Oh, good point. Right. And so the Prowler and the Growler are going to be used to protect other aircraft primarily. Cool. Well, besides Prowler, Growler, and other airborne platforms, what other type of EA platforms are there? Are there sea-based, land-based, space-based? Well, you have the EC-130 is the primary one that the Air Force is using. They'll work mostly in the uh, communications role uh, out there. Now, Growler has uh, communications jamming capabilities. The EC-130 is going to have uh, a little bit wider Frequency range, they can operate more power. But space-based, I'm not sure about space-based. Really, <laughs> I, I really don't know. Although there are advantages and disadvantages of it since a lot of communications flow through space. Right. But alignment, we could talk about that in the uh, strike planning portion of it. But alignment is very important for jamming when you have signals that are very narrow. In order to be able to disrupt that signal, you have to block it like you would block a laser at your uh, garage door. If you break that beam, the garage door doesn't come down. Mm. But if you just stand on top of it, the garage door still comes down. And so alignment is very important. And from space, the alignment gets a lot more difficult. You have to be almost directly over top of something. The other thing that space has is by the time their signal gets to earth, it's pretty quiet, which is why GPS is so easy to interfere with. It's a very, very quiet signal by the time it gets to your car or your airplane. It looks like, from what I've read, most of the space-based stuff is actually going kinetic. (laughs) Star Wars. Well, again, we'll stick with the air-based stuff. That is the point of this show, being military aviation and your experiences as well. Now, in the Prowler or the Growler, what are some, I don't know what else to call them, but victims of electronic attack? In other words, if I'm out there doing a pure air-to-air mission, is there a value added if you're behind me, let's say, and jamming uh, the enemy aircraft, perhaps? Absolutely. There's value in uh, jamming not only the enemy aircraft, but those controlling stations, be they ground Mm. or air controllers. The whole goal of jamming is to disrupt the kill chain. You got your fine fixed uh, track and target. So if I can delay finding the protected entity is what we would call somebody that I'm jamming to protect. If I can delay that being found, if I can delay maneuvers from uh, threat aircraft out there, if I can delay their decision-making as to whether or not they can shoot, then that's going to provide our side an advantage. Mm. So yeah, um, those ground-based threats or those ground-based controllers, if I can disrupt their communications and their radars, that's going to make their job harder. And it's going to put the onus on finding our air guys solely on the guys in the cockpit Mm -hmm. and relying on their training and their radars. Mm -hmm. And then if I can throw some jamming into their radars, they may not see our guys until it's too late. But as you alluded earlier, alignment gets very challenging. Yes. Right? Because if now there are the enemy and the friendly fighters going after each other, you have to be in essentially the line that those two groups scribe. Otherwise, it may not be as effective. Right. Okay. So your bread and butter really, right, is against ground-based surface-to-air type threats or detection, et cetera. Is that fair to say? That is correct, yeah. Especially with the current pods that the Growler carries, the ALQ-99 pods, same ones that were on the uh, Prowler, they're transitioning to the NGJ, and we could talk about that a little bit later, the next generation jammer. But the way that they are configured and built they point down. So it's it's a lot more effective on the ground. All right. So just to give everyone a frame of reference for this, let's walk through a practical example. Suppose we have a strike package, 
training, combat, whatever you want. But I'm most familiar with training like sure. up in Fallon. You probably yeah. did a lot of that as well. So we've got a large strike package. There could be fighters, strike fighters, dedicated attackers, whatever. But you're always going to have the EA package out there, maybe more than one element of it. Yes. And so let's suppose today we've got EA-18G Growlers. They're supporting a strike against a robustly defended target. What are some considerations in this whole scenario, let's just start at the beginning. I mean, the very first thing we do is meet the day before and plan. Right. And the first thing you're going to do is understand the target area. So once you know where the strike package is going to go, mm -hmm. then you're going to start looking at the radars in the area. So first of all, what are the SAM threats that are out there? What are the radars starting from out to in? What's going to see us first? What's our early warning radar? What are the targeting radars? And then finally, what are the fire control radars on the actual systems that we're going to be concerned about? Like I mentioned with the air-to-air -air stuff, you would expect that your strike package is going to be intercepted by aircraft first. What are they going to use to control those aircraft? And what are they going to use to build their picture to pass that information? So take a look at those threats, because what that threat is going to do is it's going to drive us to put the correct pods on the aircraft. So I mentioned the ALQ-99 pods. Each one of those pods carries two transmitters, and we can reconfigure the transmitters inside of each pod, but it's like ordnance. They only cover a certain frequency range, and so we have to make sure that we have the right transmitters for the threats that are out there. Once we understand what's out there, we prioritize it. We're going to attempt to influence the strike route. We're going to take a look at terrain. We're going to take a look at the angles. You know, So the guys with the uh, targeting pods are going to tell us what angle is going to work best for the time of day. And we're going to try to influence them to go through an area that provides either the least exposure to threat or drives them, if they have to go through threat rings, drives them through the threat rings that we're going to have the most impact on. Obviously, we're going to be more capable against some radars than other radars. And so we're going to try to get you to a place where we can provide you the most benefit. So now we've built the pods up. We've influenced the, uh, the package there. Uh, we now know the route. What we're going to do at that point is we're going to start looking at prioritizing and prioritizing our timing and our positioning behind the strike package. So you talked about alignment before. If you think of a radar signal as a cone, I want to be inside that cone, preferably with the protected entity between me and the radar on the ground. Now, if I am below, above that cone, off to the side, I'm going to have some effectiveness, perhaps, but not as much as I would if I was directly in that cone. You think about radar as noise, goes out, bounces off, and comes back. My goal is to be louder than that noise that comes back, and I'm going to be loudest if I'm right in line with the noise that's bouncing back off of the strike package. So I'll start building my alignment positioning and timing to ensure that I provide the best possible coverage for the strike package that's going in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I start talking about timing. I'm thinking both in terms of when I'm pushing relative to the strike package, when I'm bringing the jammers on, because if we are far enough away, they're not going to see us if we're beyond their radar horizon. Once I bring the jammers on, now they're going to start looking in it's that like a direction. Beacon. That's like, hey, here we come. That is exactly yeah. right. Look here. <laughs> uh, and so if I do it too early, then I highlight where we're coming from. Right. If I do it too late, then they may already have a really good azimuth that they can start uh, sending fighters or, mm. or missiles down. So I've got to build that timing into it. And then, like I mentioned, it's transmitters are kind of like ordnance. I only have so much with me at any given time. I'm going to have to prioritize what I'm using it on if I'm beyond the early warning radars now, or we're inside of the early warning radars, we assume mm -hmm. that they've seen us, then the next thing I'm going to do is start transitioning to the next type of radar okay. on down the line. Okay. So we talk a lot about radar. When you think of the electromagnetic spectrum, there's a lot more than just the bands, if you will, that are used in radar. Obviously there's visual light, Yes. Uh, and you could, in fact, have coastal observers that are out there, and we're not going to do much against them, I presume. Our tactic for those would be trying to jam their comms. Okay. Now, if you think of VHF, UHF, mm -hmm. those are line of sight. And again, alignment is going to be important. So we're going to try to get as loud as possible cool. in terms of our noise to try and block those things out. Mm -hmm. Definitely one of the things that we factor in, hitting the comms part first Got the coastal observers. Okay, right. now we're shifting to the radars. Now we're shifting to the actual threat missiles. Okay. And then 
kind of reversing it on our way back right, out right. to make sure that trailing shots are, are yeah. held off or any alert launches that have happened for fighters and things like that. What about the infrared portion of the electromagnetic spectrum? Is there anything we're doing there necessarily? Not that we're doing in the growler. So okay. yeah, the uh, things with the electro-optical, that's something that is not going to be something that we're going to be able to help with. Right. However, talking about that kill chain, if I can force it, if you think of the early warning radars as binoculars, if I could take away your binoculars, now you're going to have to search through a telescope. Uh, if I could take away your telescope and now you're down to fire control radars, now you're searching through a soda straw. They are necessarily very thin beams because they want to track movement very, very closely so that they can guide a missile in there. Obviously, if you're searching the entire sky with a soda straw, it's going to be very difficult to find. But if I can then take away your soda straw too, and now you're just searching with your eyes, it's not going to leave you a lot of time because you're not going to have much range and an aircraft flying pretty fast. You're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to try and guide it in visually, which is going to be very difficult. Right. So as you said at the beginning, the idea is you're disrupting their SOP in a sense, yes. right? If they say, hey, everyone, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have people out at the coast with binoculars, and they're going to look for contrails or maybe even just with passive sensors to listen for either our radar or our comms or whatever, and then they'll pass that back to our early warning radars, which will have a big band or that big cone that you talked about that's searching. And then once they pick something up, they can hand it off to something a little more specific accurate or specific maybe. And then when it comes time to employ something else, if that's their modus operandi, then we can jump in there and say, oh, well, now you don't have this, or now that's degraded, or this is denied or something along those lines. And that can buy us time effectively or options, or maybe by the time they get it figured out, we're gone. That's correct. Yeah. And we would call that entire system an IADS, an integrated air defense system. So that's everything that is going into the defense decision-making process. And if we can just delay a decision, then we're going to buy time and hopefully make their problem harder. So proximity to the protected assets is important, right? In other words, you guys can't just be 500 miles behind us. And of course, we want to be careful of getting too specific with anything here, but right. but you don't want to necessarily be right in with us either, although it may depend on the threat. And then if we go in from one direction, but go out another, sometimes it's too hard for the folks that were with us to go in to get there to help us on the way out. So we might have, what, other elements down there? That's right. And we would try to fly with as many as we could Mm -hmm. in order to, one, it helps our alignment. So the more that we have spaced out a little bit, we're helping to solve our alignment problem. If we have an ingress and an egress jammer, yeah, we're going to defend against those trailing shots. We're going to defend folks on the way out. And from the more axes that we can provide those effects again, the harder that problem is going to be. And if you've Mm -hmm. ever seen it on a radar, it can look like snow on a TV. It can look like uh, false targets. Again, so now what am I shooting at? I don't know what I'm going to shoot at. Maybe Mm -hmm. they waste missiles shooting at things that aren't there, or uh, maybe they just don't shoot because I don't know what I'm shooting at and I don't want to get in trouble for wasting a missile. So these are all the things that are going into our thought process to try and delay their thought process to enable guys to get weapons on targets. And just a quick aside on that, having been at Fallon a couple of times and you were as well, for those who aren't maybe initiated, that is why air wings go to Fallon together for a month. Yes. And I presume it's the same in the Air Force. I don't know if it's red flag or something else, but but Fallon is equipped with different real world and simulated sensors where we can actually assess how well it went. So yes. when 40 airplanes, let's say, of a air wing go out and do a strike and they all come back to the theater afterwards to debrief, there can be actual video that the folks on the ground can play to say, here's how effective it was, or here's how your alignment was. So we can get actual feedback on how we're doing. That's exactly right. And you can get the SAM operators, whether they're simulated or real there in Fallon to operate on a specific doctrine and they can then report back. I wouldn't have gotten a shot off or I still got a shot off because at this range, at this target. But when you see it on video, you can really judge how effective your planning and your execution Mm -hmm. was. And in reality, a place like Fallon, Red Flag, even up at Mountain Home in uh, Idaho Mm -hmm. for the Air Force Base there, those are some of the few places that we can actually go out and do this. People get freaked out by jamming. And so we have limitations on where we can do it. So that's really good training for us to see, for our maintainers to see, because this is where we groom our pods to make Mm. them uh, more effective, groom our, uh, our transmitters. 
But yeah, really important for the strike package to see, because you see, you know, with the prowlers, I got the fat kids over in the corner and they're doing their, they're doing their magic and uh, sprinkling pixie dust on the plan. But when you come back and you see, we flew through all of these threats, we flew against all of these aircraft and they didn't even get a shot off. And then you can throw up the radar screen and see, wow, yeah, that yeah. was legit. It really provides a lot of credibility and, yeah. and really enhances that air wing uh, camaraderie. Well, that's absolutely true. But I think it's also worth saying that a lot like adversary fighter pilots who are maybe as good as ever, if you can beat one of them, you could probably beat just about anyone. The folks that are running these systems out in Fallon and these different ranges <laughs> are probably as good as anyone in the world. It's, it's all they do all day yeah, long. And, and they've uh, seen it month after month. So, And if you live in central Nevada, there's not much else to do but work a radar <laughs> site. So, Awesome. All right. So we're out there on this notional strike from before. And we don't have to get into obviously specific tactics, but as far as for something on the ground, what type of EA, if you will, are you going to throw at it or does it depend on the system or what we want to do that day? I mean, aren't there different techniques effectively? There are. And it definitely depends on the system. Like I mentioned, every it's a cat and mouse game. Everything's right. constantly iterating. And when we come up with a solution, they come up with a counter and then we have to uh, evolve our solution. And so we're going to have to take a look at what the latest intel is. What are these systems operating on? How do they operate? Are we going to be effective if we just throw noise at them? Are we going to be effective if we try to introduce false targets, if we try to throw uh, speed problems at them? range problems, uh, azimuth problems, all of these types of different techniques that we're going to try to do, but it's all going to be based on what the threat is. And it's not necessarily just, this is a newer threat, this is an older threat, because software, most of it is driven by software. And software, I say it, but I'm not a coder, so but software is <laughs> relatively easy to change, but easier mm -hmm. than hardware. And so as these things iterate, then the Intel is going to have to feed us Luckily, we have a huge support staff that looks at what we capture in the airplane from our ES systems, breaks it down, analyzes it, looks for those changes in how the radar is operating, and then goes into our libraries and updates how our transmitters are going to, or how our system is going to use those transmitters to try and counter that. Wow. So it's a learning process all the time. Constantly. Wow. All right. So as far as methods go, you said earlier about the two of us are sitting here talking, a barrage noise type jamming might be if someone suddenly walked in with a leaf blower yes. and we don't change the tone of our voice, then I probably won't be able to hear you anymore, even though the signal hasn't changed, but the noise has changed, right? Right. So that's one style. And, and is alignment as big a deal on that? I mean, if the leaf blower were behind you, might not actually be as good as if you were sitting here right next to my ear. That's correct. And alignment is going to be an issue there. If you think of a, an early warning radar, they're generally 360 degree lookers. So it's something that spins when you're mm -hmm. driving past the airport. But if you are behind it, you're not going to be quite as effective as if you are in front of it with the protected entity between you and that radar. Off to the side is going to be even less effective just by the way that RF uh, kind of bleeds over. We call those side lobes and back lobes. And you generally have a little bit more effectiveness in back lobes than side lobes, but obviously right in the main beam is where you're going to be effective. So if a leaf blower is standing between you and me, we're not going to be able to hear anything off to the side. We may be able to hear a little bit more of that. And that's why alignment is really the critical characteristic mm -hmm. in how we plan what we're going to go after. And if it's off to the side in that example, one thing I can do is either increase the volume of my voice to get what we call burn through, right? Or I can Correct. get closer to you. That's right. wait for you to get closer to me effectively. Right. And burn through is going to be a product of both power and distance. So uh, if you don't change it, once I get closer, you're going to be able to hear me. And burn through is one of the things that we're uh, definitely looking at in terms of switching between targets. Mm -hmm. Once we know that a protected entity is at burn through, it does us no good to continue jamming that. Let's find something else that we can jam to be a little bit more effective for the next set. Okay. So that's noise. There's also something with deception, right? So I can take the signal you give me, corrupt it, and send it back effectively? That's right. You hear a lot about the Durfum jamming. It became uh, kind of the new hotness in the uh, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, digital radio frequency modulation. modulation. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think of it as TiVo. You know how you can pause live TV and then play it back. You pause a radio signal, you catch a radar signal, mm -hmm. you hold it for some length of time, maybe you modify it just a little bit. And as you retransmit it on that same frequency, the radar that's receiving it thinks it's the signal that it's sent out. That radar then does the calculations 
based on when it sent the signal out, when it returned it, it can calculate how far it is, how far did that travel, therefore how far away is my target. And then as it compares it to other ones around it, it can do speed calculations, it'll do angular calculations. So if I can manipulate that and make the radar think something else is happening, either in speed or in range, then that radar is going to start tracking that. And that's what I want it to do. I want it to track mm-hmm. something that isn't there, or at least induce some doubt as to what's actually going on. So my listeners know I'm famous for awful analogies, and I'm sitting here listening, and I'm trying to think of one. So let's try this. Suppose uh, I'm at the tennis court, but I have no one to play with, and you know how they always have that wall. Right. And I've got my racket and my ball, and I want to bounce it off the wall, and it's going to come back to me normally. Yes. And I would expect, after doing this for a while, based on physics, that if I hit it a certain way, it's going to come back a certain way. Now imagine the wall is some sort of evil system that can like change physics a little bit, either send it back faster or off to the side or with a little spin. Is, is that essentially what's going on? In other words, the ball's coming back like I expect it, but suddenly something's different about it. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Or you hit a crack in it and it kind of shoots off oh, to the side go, yeah. or anything that changes what you expect to happen there. Now, the reason it is more effective against uh, modern systems is because modern systems will constantly change their frequency in some way. Mm. What it can do by that is, as the jamming comes in, if it doesn't match what it's expecting to see, then it can ignore that jamming. That's the ECCM that you talked about before, electronic counter countermeasures. It's countering my countermeasures. And so if I can make the radar think that the false signal I'm sending it is the one that it expected to see, then it goes into the processor and becomes another piece of data that it has to sort through. Gotcha. All right. That's pretty crazy. (laughs) It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. So I've got some of my own questions and I've got some listener questions I want to hand off to you here. So uh, let's start with this one. So I actually thought the Air Force was out of the EA business. And then you mentioned the EC-130 earlier, but they used to have tactical, right? And then for a while they got out of that business and prowlers and were over helping. And then I assume growlers are helping now, but what is the Air Force doing? And the Marine Corps is getting out of this business too, right? The Air Force and the Marine Corps are out of the tactical uh, electronic attack business now. It's all Navy. And the Air Force used to have the EF-111, the Raven, Raven, and they got rid of that. Why they did that, I can't speak to it directly, but from what I've heard and what I can assess, when you're trying to spend a boatload of money (laughs) or uh, an airport load of money, in the Air Force's case, on stealth, it's hard to make an argument that you need both stealth uh, and jamming mm-hmm. in support of that stealth. You know, however, uh, F-117 getting shot down in Kosovo, you know, it's not obviously foolproof. That's why they've kind of uh, gotten out of that business. The EC-130 provides them a lot of capabilities, uh, definitely in support of spec ops and things like that. Yeah, and the Marines, again, can't speak specifically to what their decision was, but they obviously have gone all in on F-35 and uh, have declined uh, the Super Hornet. And the F-35 has some capabilities, but again, I assess uh, not being fully up to speed on what they can do, mostly self-protect with a little bit of uh, right. probably bleed over. But if you've gone to that sort of fifth generation stealth aircraft, it becomes difficult to make a case for jamming. Well, and I don't know the politics behind why the Marine Corps didn't buy the Super Hornet, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. And my guess is they are loath to buy the growler because that would be a foot in the door for, or if there was some agenda for why they didn't want the Rhino, because at that point, it's more or less, I think, the same airplane, but we can talk about that in a second. Oh, yeah, for sure. Is that the reason then why, as a CO, you said you were a forward deployed 
squadron. So was that what you were doing? Were you going out and supporting Marines or Air Force or what were you doing? Yeah, it's exactly right. Uh, So as the Prowler Growler transitioning was coming along, the Navy was going to get out of the land-based business. So about the time I started flying the late 90s, early 2000s, the Navy had gotten into the land-based Prowler mission. The Iraq and Afghanistan being obviously very land-based missions were driving a need for having electronic attack, mostly against IEDs. So the IEDs that are being detonated by cell phones or by key fobs and Mm -hmm. garage door openers, there's vulnerability there. And so these things became important. The Navy was going to go away from that. Everything was going to be carrier-based. So I think it was sometime in the uh, 2007 to 9 timeframe when I was department head, General Petraeus put a memo up to, uh, I believe, the Secretary of Defense and said, this is a capability that we cannot afford to not have anymore. Mm -hmm. The Navy then, in order to buy more growlers and support this mission, I believe a deal was struck where three of the first four growler transition squadrons were going to be land-based in order to provide that Air Force, Marine, and Army support. My squadron was the first squadron I got there after that right as they finished up the transition, we were a land-based squadron. The second squadron went to sea in order to verify that everything on an aircraft carrier was going to work to support it. And then the next two squadrons became land-based squadrons mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. We deployed to uh, Misawa in northern Japan, and we flew exercises with the Air Force, the, the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force, the Australians, the Koreans, and utilized that capability with them from both a radar and communications perspective. What time of year were you up there? Uh, we got there in August, which is Gorgeous. miserable, hot, and, oh, hot? and okay. humid. And none of the <laughs> lodging had air conditioning. Ooh. It was absolutely awful. Uh, so we and still, then you left in February when it was freezing cold? We left in February when it was seven feet of snow. <laughs> and we couldn't fly because of the blinding snowstorms. Oh, and the, the divert field wouldn't plow. Okay. Uh, so we had no diverts. And it was the extremes. Okay. Uh, the in-between parts, though, in Korea, Guam, and Australia were fantastic. Oh, I'm sure. No, I assumed it was beautiful because I've seen some pictures and it kind of looked like the Fallon area if you go west over to Lake Tahoe. But yeah. uh, the only time I went up there was for the ice festival in February, which was really <laughs> cool. Did you Were you able to see that? We didn't make it up there to uh, that. We actually left in January, but it was, uh, yeah, the snow is unbelievable yeah, up there. Yeah, that's crazy. All right, shifting gears a little bit. How do we handle EA from our adversaries on us? Is that something you guys are involved with at all as in VAQ community? Not necessarily in VAQ community, because we're looking at projecting out, but Mm -hmm. uh, understanding what they are trying to do to our air-to-air radars, for example, and making sure that we act as SMEs, jamming SMEs Mm -hmm. for the, uh, or subject matter experts, for the air wing, for the ships. You know, I'm concerned about right now is jamming of my radars on the ship, and how is that going to impact my ability to self-defense? And so we train to that. We train to, one, recognize it. So if an operator hasn't seen it, Uh, may not know what they're looking at, may think there's a problem with the radar or the display itself. So we've got to train to it to understand what we're looking at. And then we have to train to how we're going to adjust frequencies or are we going to adjust gains? Are we going to move positioning? Because jamming can be very, very localized. So if we can move out of the bandwidth or out of the cone, then we're going to provide ourselves a little bit more capability there. Um, So it's a training and recognition aspect. Awesome. All right, so I have a question from listener Robert Collin who asks, Prowlers had a crew of four, pilot plus three EWOs, although I think they were ECMOs, right? ECMOs, electronic countermeasures. Uh, Growlers halved that on introduction. What happened to all the extra ECMOs? The community started to downsize. Okay. And so as we were picking department heads, you know, at each one of the wickets, you start to downsize. You start to downsize in the sessions. You start to downsize in promotions and selection boards. But at the end, what you saw were the few Prowler squadrons that were left were getting the Prowlers. So they had more airplanes. They were getting the air crew. So they turned out to be fairly big squadrons um, in order to uh, see how things were going to play out with some of the folks. But it was definitely a planned and phased transition in terms of number of people. And unfortunately, it's a tough game and some people didn't make the cut also, which is a shame. Well, and that's the follow-up question we have here from Philip Novak, who told me, by the way, he lost his cousin in a 1998 Prowler mishap. Uh, He says, how did they go from three ECMOs uh, when they divided their duties in that one to one effectively in the Growler? And specifically, his question is, let's start with this. In the Prowler, did each seat have a different role? 
The two back seats had the same role. Okay. The ECMO in the front seat, in the front right seat, that seat was known as ECMO 1. Okay. That ECMO was responsible for communications, navigation, and harm. The two in the back were responsible for ES and EA, and both seats in the back were exactly the same. And so it was really just kind of a a crew handshake on who was going to be responsible for listening and identifying signals, locating them, and who was going to be responsible for doing the jamming. The pilot in the Prowler had zero mission display. Bus driver? He had all, that's right. (laughs) He had all of the flight information. Mm -hmm. The guys in the back seat only had altitude and airspeed. The guy in the front right seat had to kind of lean over and and look at the instruments just to know altitude and airspeed. So ergonomically, it was a mess. So how do we do it with two instead of four? Yeah. Well, toward the end of the time that the Prowler was flying, technology had grown. So it started out with two people in the back seat, as leaders had told me when I was very junior, because the two guys in the back seat would go out there with reams of paper and have to manually input everything on the little keyboards back there. So as technology came, as technology grew and they were able to upgrade it, it got to the point that we would walk to the airplanes with these big metal discs that we would load into the airplane and that then had, so all the work was being done in mission planning. Mm -hmm. By the time I left the Prowler and same thing in the Growler, we're down to PCMCIA cards, which are little, you know, credit card size things. So the technology enabled more mission planning, which enabled you to reduce the workload on the guys in the back. By the time the Prowler was done flying For the most part, you could fly a prowler with two people, except for the fact that a lot of the navigation and definitely the harm stuff was on the far side of the cockpit for the pilot, and he couldn't physically reach it. So ECMO-1 at that point was doing comms, nav, and harm simply because the pilot couldn't reach it. Technologically speaking, though, they could do the mission. So as you go to the growler and you really upgrade the technology and you really upgrade the user interface you integrate the pilot into it. So Mm -hmm. the pilot is now doing a lot of the mission stuff. And that's where we, as an early adopter squadron, had to figure out what the proper crew coordination was. What is the pilot going to focus on? What's the EWO going to focus on? And as we work that out, once you have two people with the technology enabling them to just use it instead of manipulate it in the airplane, and then the technology of the airplane makes the displays a lot more user-friendly, two people becomes actually way more effective than four people. Yeah, because the crew coordination is always a big hurdle uh, a lot of times of just interacting with the different people. Yeah. All right, well, that's interesting. And I think that's partly why a Growler pilot, or EWO for that matter, is not necessarily a Super Hornet pilot, even though it's basically, and again, we're not going to talk specifics on those two airplanes. We'll come back to those hopefully on another episode. But I mean, for all purposes, Growler is a F frame, right? Yes. Then they put the wingtip pods on, they put some different antenna, they plummet differently. I know the displays are different, but it's based on the F, but it doesn't, the mission's not the same. And as we have a question coming up, it doesn't fly the same either. Right. And from my early days at Fallon, when we were, uh, this kind of was in the nascent development stage, Mm -hmm. what I thought was going to happen, and I don't know if this happened or not, was that every aircraft coming off of the Boeing line was going to be plumbed for Growler. It's like 500 extra pounds of wiring or something throughout it. And then you could say between a deployment, a Growler lands heavy because it's got those pods underneath. Each one weighs a thousand pounds. So if a Rhino takes off and drops its bombs and comes back and lands, it's a lot lighter than a Growler that comes back and lands with 3000 pounds every single time. So in order to kind of spread that stress out across the fleet, one of the ideas was let's make them all growler insides. And then between deployments, we can shift all the stuff around Hmm. and kind of spread that out. I don't know if that ever happened or not, but I thought that was a good idea. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so that is the uh, next question I have here from Jackson Reams, who works on growler wingtip arrays and power supplies. He says, he's curious how the antennas on the wingtips, the extra body antennas, and the jamming pods affect maneuvering performance compared to a Super Hornet. And you said earlier you had a chance to ride in the back of the F. Yes. But I'm going to take a stab at this because, again, you put all those pods on there, and this thing's going to it's going to wallow around a bit. But now, when you're deployed, will you always have, what, three pods or five pods? How many pods are you going to have? Generally carry three pods okay. on the aircraft, so you have room for fuel tanks and you have room harm. for harm. Yeah, okay. So is a three-podded growler going to fly like, a let's say, three-wet, Rhino? It is. It's okay. going to perform similarly, although the pods are 1,000 pounds versus 2,000 pound drop tanks. 
on the Rhino, but yeah, it's sluggish. The wingtips and the antenna that kind of ring the, the aircraft, they're flush. They don't make much of a difference. Okay. It's really the pylons, just like in a Rhino with the cant on the pylons and those thousand pound barn yeah. doors that are out there yeah. that affect the performance. Yeah. You're not burning the fuel out of them so that they're empty at the end. Okay. That's correct. Fair enough. Joe Kunzler asks, how did EA go from radars for fellow planes to jamming radios and IEDs in support of the boots on the ground? You kind of touched on this already, but yeah. someone along the way said, hey, wait a minute, we're losing a lot of soldiers to these you know, remote controlled devices. We have things that can jam and someone figured out it could be done, huh? Exactly. Yeah. And I assume this is Prowler Joe up in Whidbey Island, who, oh, uh, who I know. So good. <laughs> he wanted me to ask you about FCLPs. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay out of that one for sure. The, uh, yeah, Afghanistan, you think about Afghanistan, I think they had maybe uh, some old uh, Russian SAM or something, and uh, that was destroyed on night one. Prowlers were flying and providing communications, jamming support and things like that, where there were no radar threats. But yeah, the IEDs started becoming the primary threat over there. And once you realize that the IEDs are operating via RF and that the frequency spectrum allows us to have an impact on that, it became a primary mission. And a lot of time and energy was spent doing this. And a lot of Prowler guys going on uh, individual augmentee assignments to ground units in order to advise them on how to request it, what they needed to specifically ask for, especially in terms of routes. And then we had to spend a lot of time as tactics guys and as aviators figuring out how we're going to fly our profiles. How far out do we need to be? How far out is too far? What can we do? Can we detonate it before they get there or can we prevent detonation? And what's the right answer? And a lot of it, again, depends on the threat. Yeah. David Swafford asks, can a jamming pod operate at maximum capacity and steady state or will thermal loading factor into how the EA can be deployed? And again, if we want to steer away from sensitive subjects, I don't know if this is a, a one of those or not, but is there a limitation for you guys on, obviously you, you want to tailor it to what we're seeing out there, but is time also an, an issue? It isn't. First of all, the ALQ-99 provides its own power. It's got a propeller on the front for a ram air turbine. As it goes through the air, that propeller spins and that's what provides the electricity. So it doesn't use any of the aircraft generator electricity, oh. provides all its own power. And then it's also got... Uh, air access. It's got natural so it's just, cooling. It's just cold air. <laughs> That's all it is. It's cold air yeah. flying around it and flying through it. Uh, and if you look at the underside of a jamming pod of an ALQ-99 pod, we call it the canoe. It's a fiberglass canoe, first of all, so it lets the RF energy out, mm. but it also just allows air to flow through there. All right. Ajivo says, when or how does the EA community learn their adversaries have technology capable of defeating or overcoming theirs. Is it only during a conflict? And again, I think you kind of touched on this before, as far as we can get feedback from how we're doing, not just in training, but in combat. Absolutely. Intel, of course, is a big part of this. So everybody's watching everybody all the mm -hmm. time, which affects the way that we operate. But as we gather intel from watching other people's exercises, we can kind of build this library up. But the other thing that we're going to do is every time we're flying around, especially in the Growler, which has a much, much better ES suite in terms of frequency discrimination and location data, it's just sucking in all this information and building up a library. And we can come back and analyze that. And we can send that back to the experts who will look at it and look for those little changes and then make adjustments in how our jamming techniques are going after those things. However, things that they don't want to show us, they want to hold their cards close to the <laughs> vest. And so I expect yeah. if conflict happens, we're going to be surprised by a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah. there are going to be a lot of people back home that are going to be pouring over this data, looking to find those changes in their capabilities. Is there a whole office dedicated to this, like in China Lake or the Pentagon or somewhere? Uh, there are multiple offices, yeah. uh, guys that build the libraries, guys that code the stuff that goes into the airplane. Mm -hmm. There are some smart guys at uh, Johns Hopkins that take a look at this stuff. There were a few folks that, you know, well-known as the experts in this, and we used to say, you know, let's make sure they fly on different aircraft if they're coming out here to Whidbey Island to brief us. Oh. We don't want these guys going down. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they probably work in buildings with no windows and uh, <laughs> have to go through access points because this is, again, cutting-edge stuff. Yeah, unusually close to Fort Meade. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay, there you go. Christopher Franklin asks, what measures are taken to reduce radiation risk for pilots and ground crew on both platforms? Are there any differences or improvements 
with the growler as compared to the prowler? And before you answer that, Minnie, because I think it's related to these other two questions I have. One is from Tom Little, who wants to know why the difference between the prowler and the growler canopies, how it looks. And then we have a phone call about this too. So let's give that a listen. Hello, this is Dex from Lodi, California. B52H, check six. Hey, the EA6B Prowler had that goldish tint to the canopies, the Faraday tint, I think we can call it. And when I look at the E18G Growler, I'm not seeing that. Is there a reason why the Prowler, who has the same mission, less crew, does not have that golden Faraday tint? That's the question of the day. All right, I'm out. All right, Minnie, so let's start with the easy one. I'm guessing there's not a lot of threat to the guys on the ground because you're not transmitting usually when the aircraft is on the ground. Correct. And if you are transmitting at an enemy system that's on the ground, well, if the people next to it are caught up in that, I guess that's not a huge concern if they're combatants. (laughs) But what about the folks in the airplane and what about the canopies? Let's start with the ground folks. Again, yeah, we're not jamming on the ground. And as we go through our bit checks and making sure that everything's working correctly, there's all internal type stuff. Same thing with the radar. And then we put the radar in silence as we start taxiing out. For those folks that are on the ground, because we talked about those great folks that live in Fallon and uh, and work the radars for us, by the time the power gets to them, they're getting more radiation from the uh, Nevada sunlight than they are from mm-hmm. us. So not a concern for those guys. I'm, I'm worried about their computers. So in the air, the gold canopy, the Prowler had a gold canopy. It was lined in kind of a gold foil, and that was to prevent the radiation from getting in and doing too much damage to the air crew in there. Uh, there's an old joke that Prowler guys have uh, lots of daughters out there. <laughs> I have a son, so maybe I didn't fly enough, uh, perhaps. But then as you see in the Growler, you don't see that, but it's integrated into it in a different way. I think the gold canopy was probably just kind of a makeshift solution initially. And mm. then like, all right, let's get that fixed throughout the fleet. And then now you have the canopies that are, that are just far more integrated, thinking about it from the beginning. But the other thing that you have to your advantage in the airplane is the fact that, like I said, the transmissions are generally going out and down. So you have masking from the airplane, which is helping to prevent a lot of that stuff from getting up into the cockpit area. Masking is something that we're concerned about in our positioning as well. Because if, if I'm trying to jam off the right wing with a transmitter on my left wing, the aircraft is blocking a lot of that energy. Hmm. And so that's what's providing that capability or that defense for the air crew themselves. Yeah. Just on a side note, I have seen some headlines lately. I forget who's pursuing it. I think maybe um, the Wounded Warrior folks have a, someone looking into this, but something about fighter pilots, and I assume they mean you know tactical air pilots, having higher cancer rates and looking into that. But is that a concern in the community? Has that ever come up as far as, hey, we're sitting right next to these pods, putting out all this RF energy as far as, you know, anecdotally girls, but um, I don't know. Is there any evidence to suggest in your experience, you've been in the Navy a long time? Not that I've seen. Uh, I think it's an initial concern when everybody shows up right after flight school, like, am I going to get radiated here? I don't think that anybody, nothing that I've seen from that. With capabilities though, you asked about the change in capabilities. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important question because the growler, it's not an incremental leap from the prowler. It is an exponential leap from the prowler. So you think about it from a speed and maneuverability standpoint. It's a rhino essentially. So it's, it's able to, you talked about being integrated in with the folks that we're trying to protect. It's an option now. It wasn't an option in the prowler. We could be right in there. Now I know I've got alignment because I'm right with you. I can keep up data link. Now the prowler started getting data link toward the end of its life, but it's integrated into the growler. So I can really adjust my alignment because I can see you in my helmet. I can see where the protected entity is compared to where that thread is on the ground. So I can be more precise in my alignment. In the prowler, I had to listen to the strike lead say, we're coming right 45 degrees. Our new ingress axis is this. And now I've got to scramble and do mental math and draw Mm -hmm. it out on my kneeboard. How am I going to maneuver the airplane to make sure I have this alignment on there? So from that perspective, we're going to be a lot more effective. From an ES perspective with those antenna around the aircraft instead of just in the uh, tail of the prowler, I'm going to get a lot more precise location data of where those threats are. That's going to enable me to fix my alignment. It's going to enable me to make better recommendations to the strike lead to avoid pop-up threats. And that's just great. I've got an air-to-air radar with AMRAM, so I can defend myself, which may uh, help 
when resources are limited, I don't need escorts perhaps, or maybe Mm -hmm. I just need one escort who can act as a wingman. The ability to defend ourselves enables us to drive a little bit closer, which is going to make our jamming more effective. And it's also going to enable us to stay on station a little bit longer in the prowler. As soon as something pierced your bubble, you were running away. And that's a mission kill. Now those guys that are over the target don't have jamming. So I want to stay there as long as possible. And if I know that I can see that thing on radar and potentially shoot that threat and stay on station, that's going to provide a lot more uh, benefit. From a maintenance perspective, uh, we talked about it essentially being a rhino. It's somewhere greater than 80% commonality. It's newer. It's going to work better uh, Mm -hmm. than the Prowler. It's going to be more reliable. But that Maintenance commonality is huge from a supply and maintenance perspective on the aircraft carrier. AIMD can focus on a bunch of rhinos, essentially, which is going to help your mission-capable rates and uh, keep those things flying. Yeah, that makes sense. Ryan Shepard asks, how is it possible for an active jamming platform of any kind to operate without revealing its location? Yeah, you can't. Once you bring the jammers on, uh, mm-hmm. everybody knows you're out there. Yeah, look over here. But there's a benefit to that too, right? Perhaps uh, I talked about the timing. Well, what if I send one off in a different direction and have him light up early? And now I can get everybody looking left when mm-hmm. we're coming in from the right, the old rope-a-dope. There's a potential benefit to that. But really what happens is we become a very vulnerable asset because they can see where we are. They know that if they can get us to run away that jamming is gone. It makes the blue forces more vulnerable. They could target us, uh, again, trying to get a hard kill and, and reduce that threat for the next strike. Yeah. Well, and to your point, knowing that it we it's hard to deny where we are, we can use that to our advantage. And like you said, in a feint. So we can have some aircraft that maybe just go over and launch some TALB, right? Tactical mm-hmm. air launch decoy, which is not just a piece of metal in the sky that can be detected, but sometimes they can have their own emissions and say, hey, look over here. And that way you can, again, make everyone look left when you're coming from the right. So. That's right. All right. James Pollitt says, is it better to have dedicated electronic warfare aircraft or can any fighter be modified for electronic warfare by adding jamming pods and anti-radiation missiles? And along the same lines, is it better to have entire squadrons dedicated to electronic warfare or should it be a mission that all fighter squadron are trained for. And, and before you answer, Manny, I'm going to take that second one because no, it's hard, <laughs> hard enough to do everything we have to do in a VFA squadron. But you had talked about mixing foundations, if you will, of aircraft to spread out essentially the wear and tear on that. Right. But what do you think to his point about maybe mixing it around uh, in the air wing as far as either the air crew go or the squadrons? I mean, any merit to that, you think? Yeah, I'm a... Uh obviously biased, uh, but I agree with you that there's enough going on in a Super Hornet that adding another mission set, especially one that's fairly complicated, would really just dilute the capabilities of someone in a squadron. So I think a single squadron is the way to go. Like I mentioned, in terms of swapping the airplanes around, yeah, if they're foundational the same, that makes sense to do that. I don't think that you could pull it off inside of one squadron. Well, and again, the insides of the Rhino and the Growler are different. And we're going to get to that when we have a Growler episode. But so it's not just a function of slap some pods on and go. You've got the wingtips that are different. You've got all the different capabilities. Well, what's the future for EA? I mean, we've talked about the cat and mouse game and that comes up a lot on this show of tactic, counter tactic, capability, counter capability. But you threw out the latest hotness being Durfum. But is that yeah. still just the thing is figure out what the enemy's doing and how can we jam it essentially? Well, we've got to, with limited resources, we've got to mm-hmm. focus on how are we going to improve? And I don't know that we spend time or money trying to improve things that the enemy isn't doing yet, but you definitely want to stay ahead. Really what they're working on right now is looking to get clearance for the next generation jammer getting these old ALQ-99 pods, although they've been updated and upgraded, it's time to get those moving on and get these new uh, pods going. And they're working on that at Pax River. I don't know if they're testing them at China Lake or not yet, but that's where it's going to go for the Growler. I would think from an overall perspective, not just US, but adversary, if I, if I was looking at changes to make, I would try to see what I could do about cyber, about getting into someone's Wi-Fi network mm. or someone's Bluetooth network. If I can put something on my normal radiation energy, my normal frequencies that can have an impact on a computer, at least temporarily, so it's not a cyber attack, at least temporarily, maybe that can, again, delay that kill chain. Mm -hmm. If I can introduce false targets or if I can make a processor overspeed itself or something like that so that they can't make a decision. 
And it's certainly within the realm of the possible. It happens every day. So as you're driving your car, I'm driving around here, I'm listening to 91X. I can hear Bob Marley on the radio, but then if I look at the digital display in my car, it'll tell me that it's Weeby Jammin' by Bob Marley. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, So I can see that, but that's a digital cyber inject into my car radio system. Ah. And it just rides on top of those frequencies. And as my car gets it, it translates it and displays it to me. So it's already happening every day. It's happening in your car as you drive around. I would assess that that's probably where I would take it to see what I could do. If you think that an IADS is going to be linked by wireless network or uh, you know mm-hmm. some sort of communication network like that, how can you disrupt that right. in much the same way? Maybe not even so overtly, because let's say you were trying to jam my situational awareness and you sent a packet that I don't know you're there, but all of a sudden, instead of saying it's Bob Marley, it says it's Van Halen. Absolutely. I get confused and I miss my turn off or something. I mean, yeah, weird analogy, but the point being is there's a lot of different ways to disrupt. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's the future of EA. What's the <laughs> future for you? I mean, we're going to start wrapping this up, but by the way, what is the USS Somerset? What USS is Somerset is an amphibious transport dock, okay. LPD 25. Uh, we have a crew of 400 or so, and uh, we're going to go out to sea with about uh, 700 Marines on board. So it's a, uh, our job is to deliver Marines uh, to the beach. We've right. got multiple levels in there and a well deck. We have a flight deck on there, so mm-hmm. we're capable of uh, launching H1s, uh, H60s, uh, MV22s, uh, 53s. Right. Yeah. I'm, in fact, in June, I'm going to go get my swim fizz rehacked. I'm looking forward to trying to fly the V22s <laughs> on deployment, All right. uh, which is fun. Uh, but I'm going to be in command here for uh, what I suspect is the next year. Then I'm just waiting to find out about uh, aircraft carrier command. Okay. And if all goes well, you will be selected to command a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. Yes. All right. That's correct. And then based on how that goes, we could see Admiral Dave Kurt someday, <laughs> theoretically. Yeah. <laughs> that is laughable. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, fair enough. And you know the drill here. The last question on the show for you always is, how did you earn your call sign? And I'm going to guess that Mini-Me is maybe uh, one of those, like we had the guy Buttercup who was like 6'3 and 220. Yeah. I mean, you stand about what, 6'2? So, uh... <laughs> That's what I was going to tell everyone in podcast land <laughs> since they can't see me. It was one of those ironic call signs. Yeah. Either that or that the jamming had shrunk me from 6'2 to 5'5. Uh, five, five. But uh, <laughs> I'm a short guy. And uh, when I joined my first squadron, VAQ-138, the Yellow Jackets, they were deployed to Aviano in Italy for right. Operation Allied Force. And that was in the early part of 1999. They come back home and the second Austin Powers movie had been released while they were gone. So as everybody gets back, they go see the uh, the new Austin Powers movie uh, and Mini-Me sticks. But I like it. It's unique. Yeah. Uh, I've only heard of one other person that has Mini-Me as a call sign. It gets a chuckle from leaders. And I, I did once uh, get admonished for uh, signing off an email to... Uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Dempsey. I was sending him an email as an update when I was working in the Pentagon. And I said, you know, very respectfully, mini me. And my boss came down, who I, who I knew, knew pretty well. I worked with him a lot. He came down. He's like, you can't tell the chairman you can't sign off with mini me. Was <laughs> your, your boss first a uh, navigator? It was. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's a vice admiral now, so uh, right. I won't throw him under the bus. But Well, at least it's not one of those <laughs> just when you hear it, you blush kind of call signs like some <laughs> that are out there. All right. Well, that's cool, buddy. Uh, thanks for talking about this. It was really amazing. And I, I learned a lot as I always do on this show. Now, before we wrap up though, I want to tell the DCS players in the audience that this week we're thrilled to be sponsored by Thrustmaster, who is celebrating 30 years of developing flight sim hardware, as well as the 10 year anniversary of the Warthog stick. And then Thrustmaster is expanding their combat sim ecosystem to allow you, the gamer, to pick the base and the stick. In fact, a couple months ago, I made a review of the Thrustmaster F-18 stick. I did that on a video. We adapted the F-18 stick to the Warthog base, and you can find that video on our YouTube channel. If you fly the DCS F-16 module, they have an F-16 stick add-on as well, with more ecosystem additions to come. And to help celebrate their 30th anniversary, Thrustmaster and the Fighter Pilot Podcast have teamed up to run a promotion giving away a Warthog stick and base to one lucky winner. Entry is free, and you can find the link in the show notes and on our various social media platforms. And we'll be talking more about our new partnership with Thrustmaster in the episodes to come. Before we wrap up today, we want to recognize our new supporters. That includes Patreon Strike Leads, Jackson Reams, Peter Farmer, BJ Kerwin, Matthew Edwards, 
and Robert Collin. We also have a new mission commander, Brock Kreckelberg, and a new air boss, Matt Sothorn. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Minnie, that was a lot of fun and hugely informative. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today to explain electronic attack. I had a great time. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. And for the rest of you, thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show, and don't forget to share us with your network. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Just a quick note before you go. Our friend and former guest, Kevin Miller, well, he's back with another exciting book just in time to celebrate the 78th anniversary of the Battle of Midway, tomorrow, June 4th, 2020. The Silver Waterfall is historical fiction, offering a glimpse into the lives of the American and Japanese sailors and airmen involved in this epic and pivotal naval battle. The book is available on Amazon, and if you purchase it through the shop page on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, it costs you nothing more, but it helps support your favorite show. Thanks. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.